0: the incredible true story of bravery and defiance and music in the most awful conditions imaginable. Historical writer Heather Morris has penned a new book that focuses on the experiences of a group of Australian army nurses who were taken prisoner by the Japanese as they tried to sail from Singapore in 1942. The group had fled from Malaya and joined other refugees from Singapore when their ship, the Viner Brook, like so many others, was bombed. Surviving the sinking was traumatic enough, but the women would spend the next three years and seven months being shuffled around internment camps on an island off Sumatra. Despite the horrors of the camp, starvation and disease, the women found a way to boost morale through forming a choir led by Margaret Dryberg and set to the music by Nora Chambers, who trained at the Royal Academy of Music. Heather's also the author of the best-selling The Tattooist of Auschwitz, which is being made into a TV series starring Harvey Keitel and Melanie Linsky. She followed that up with *Chilka's Journey and Three Sisters. And this latest historical novel, based on fact, Sisters Under the Rising Sun, is out today. Heather's in New Zealand for its release. She's with us in the Tamaki Makaurau, Auckland studio. Good morning, Heather. Welcome.
1: Oh, good morning and thank you. Yeah, happy pub day, folks. Happy pub day? Yeah. Is that an Aussie thing? Yeah, publication, short for, come oh, on.
0: Oh, I see. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't mean to cast nasturtiums. Right. No, no, no. Enough of the Aussie jokes. you know what? Well, I I just... I'm a Kiwi, though. This I is a weird
1: thing, but I've been there too long. I lady. know you're
0: a Kiwi, so quickly let's do that. Born, yeah. brent, where?
1: Tiawamutu. That's
0: right. And then you went to Aussie first time?
1: Look, I went there as a, uh, well, 18-year-old, uh, bounced back, of course, lived in Christchurch, had three incredible kids there, lived there for a while, and, um, yeah, then returned. Went back again. Mm. Uh, do
0: you know, I just had a flashback to my very, very early childhood. I think I was probably in nappies. This reminded me of and, and what an impact this TV series must have had. It was called Tenko. I don't know if you're familiar yes, with it. Yes, I am. And it very was women passionate. in a Japanese um, internment camp, presumed to be Sumatra. I don't think it was ever, or near Sumatra. I don't think it was ever named. But straight away, I felt myself you know mentally going back to that as as a reminder because we don't write very often about women in war Heather it's another one of those there are there are some right Um, Mm. but it's another one of those areas where someone's got to do the digging often someone's got to find the story and, and then write it and produce it how did you come across this one?
1: My wonderful publisher in London, Kate Parkin, she mentioned it to me several years ago. And I was going to investigate it. And then three sisters popped up, literally, two of the three sisters, living sisters. And that came about. I still had the story in the back of my mind. And I caught up with a couple of colleagues, ex-colleagues from the hospital where I worked in Melbourne. And I thought, oh, you're the same vintage as me. If I throw this name at you, see if you've heard anything about it. Because I knew nothing about them. And I threw this name out there of the nurses and Vivian Bullwinkle. And one of these people I was having lunch with said, oh, Nesta James, she's my second cousin. She was one of those nurses. I know about them. So did you have a name of one of the nurses or did you just know about the nurses
0: when this happy coincidence happens?
1: Uh, The name I had was Vivian Bullwinkle, and and for very significant reasons, because she is a significant person in the story. Well, she has a story uniquely hers within the the Mm bigger story. But uh, yeah, to be sitting there opposite Nesta James' cousin, you know, Deb didn't even know and I found out later that in fact her cousin, Nesta, was the senior nurse, not just one of the nurses, but that really doesn't matter because hierarchy didn't play a part in the the women's survival. We'll we'll get to this story, but the
0: discovery of it and the research of it is always so interesting. When you're undertaking something as challenging as historical fiction especially near historical fiction you can write what you like now it seems about Queen Anne and people will argue about it but, <laughs> but these people still have living survivors and, and, yes. and these memories are still raw so yeah. you found a member of Nesta's family where did that
1: lead you? It took me to two more members of her family and living in Cardiff in Wales it was really, really important to me that I had to get every living member of the family that, uh, that I could find. And not having had any children of her own, I was now looking at that second, third cousins. And to be able to convince – well, not convince them, but just get from them, are you happy that I tell this story? any one of them had a said no we don't want this and it would never have seen the light of day it's as simple as that and nora please introduce us oh nora i look i didn't i doubt it i'd be able to find anything or anyone to talk to me about her i was only going to write the, the nurses story but every account i read every book every memoir and looks a brilliant thing the australian government when those nurses returned uh, got them to make testimonies both written and oral and so I actually have listened to Nessa to our tape of her being interviewed not long after she returned, and so in her own words, I have her account. But I was able to read these other accounts and the name Nora Chambers just kept coming up. Well, I went and investigated Nora Chambers and my wonderful researcher, yeah, okay guys, I do employ somebody else who knows what she's doing. And she said to me, she rang me up one day really excited. She had found a little clip in a church newspaper uh, on the island of Jersey dated in the 1960s that mentioned the name Nora Chambers. Well, I rang that church and I said, uh, I'm going to throw a name at you, Nora Chambers. Does that mean anything to you? And the person on the other end said, well, I guess Nora was a member of our church for many, many years. I said, what about Sally, her daughter Sally? And she said, oh, we'll see Sally on Sunday. She'll mm-hmm. be here for services. Uh, I now had access to that eight-year-old girl who got put on that boat with her aunt and cousins a couple of days earlier than her parents. Wow. Uh,
0: It's amazing, particularly in England, churches just seem to be the place to go. I was speaking Mm. to another Australian, actually, on his search to find his father uh, and his birth mother and his birth father. Birth mother was a nun. Birth father was a priest Uh and found, um, got as close as he could to birth mother by going to her former church and... Yeah, and there you go. Yes, she'll be there yeah. Sunday. Uh, yeah, so I found didn't myself end as happily that one at that stage. No, so here you are getting closer and closer to family members, family history. Yeah. But were these nurses quite celebrated when they did return? And was that you? You already alluded to it. There was quite a bit of testimony and in, in, in oral history. Were you looking for more human layers? Were you looking for more who may have been in the group? What did you need?
1: It's a matter of well, in terms of them being celebrated, they were celebrated for five minutes. Literally, on their arrival in Perth. And then they were told, now, quickly, within 24 hours, get Mm. back to your own state. Mm -hmm. And their family members were told, Catherine, this is what really shocks me and horrifies me, that they were told, now, when they come home, don't ask them anything about the experience. Pretend it never happened
0: goodness well and that's how that, these that was, nurses that have was applied lived. to women and men often wasn't it um, true that to the mm-hmm. but mental... the men
1: were celebrated they gave them parades in the streets and uh, welcomed them home publicly. That did not happen to the nurses. well we'll root back to that a bit later but let's get into the
0: story. Yep. So the focus was on the nurses in the book uh, the main ones that we're discussing in the book what was their mission what were they doing in Singapore?
1: Well, Anessa, many of them had actually been in Malaya and they had joined the Australian Army. They had gone there to care for the Australian and Allied troops because they knew that uh, that war was coming and it was coming down through Malaya. So they were there, really on the front line, and that's where they wanted to be. So, yes, they're volunteers, but they're paid volunteers. You can't call them volunteers. They're they're members of the Army. And, uh, yes, they got chased out of Malaya down to Singapore uh, and... The nurses didn't want to leave. They, they fought to, to be able to stay and care for the, the men there that got injured or wounded and sick, but they were forced onto the boat. And that's uh, where they met. Well, they didn't meet her initially, but, yeah, they're on the same boat as Nora yeah. and her sister, Ina, and her let's husband, just, John. Let's
0: just sort of recap on the history. There's this mad rush to evacuate Singapore, right, yeah. where the Japanese are nearing. Um, and can you just sort of recapture perhaps for people not familiar, you know, a little bit younger, what that rush was like, the confusion, the difficulty in trying to secure passage off the island, and then this route out on a boat through waters that were being patrolled by the Japanese. I mean, these are the core elements of the setting,
1: aren't they? Oh, well, absolutely. There were a lot of English and Dutch and Australian and New Zealand people living in Malaya and in Singapore. Uh, Britain had uh, colonised Malaya and Singapore. And so that's why there were so many expats there now wanting to get out. And they all left it too late because the British government had assured them Singapore could never fall. And so, yes, they're now trying to get out on the from anything that could sail, from rickety boats to uh, merchant ships, which is what the Viner Brook was. The British Navy sequestered it, gave it the title HMS, Viner Brook, And, uh, yeah, but many of them were, they were just bombed before they even left the harbour. Yeah. Having sent her eight year old daughter off on a boat and then having seen so many of them not even uh, get out of eyesight, uh, can you imagine what it was like for, for Nora for four years not to know whether or not her daughter had actually got out? 65 service women were on the Viner
0: Brook when, um, yeah. when it left, only 24, including Vivian, whom, whom we've mentioned, Vivian Bullwinkle and Betty Jeffrey, I think. Um, Wait, and Nesta and Nesta returned to Australia and, and of 32 pris- taken prisoner of war 8 died in captivity um, mm. there are extraordinary scenes where you are imagining what happens after the bombing of the, um, of the boat and and um, You know what were they the the survival story, and we'll get to how they mentally and emotionally and spiritually survive. But the physical survival story is quite something in itself, right? They're literally in waters, trying to find where land might be, and knowing, of course, land might not
1: be a safe place. Well, there's that, but they couldn't get to the beaches. The tides kept pushing them out. Some of them were in the water for over twenty four hours. And, and in the water with nothing, just hanging on to a piece of the timber from the boat, or a couple of them were, a few of them were in some life, lifeboats, but most of those got destroyed with the bombing. For, so for those people to be in the water that long and to get so close to the beach and then they'd get pushed back out again, it must have been incredibly, incredibly uh, harrowing. To not know if you could make land and to get so close so many times and then to end up in mangroves like Betty and others did and cut to pieces. Uh, there was nothing enjoyable about making landfall and to then be met by the Japanese.
0: And Bully, of course, comes across um, – is it mm. Bully who comes across at a massacre in, in, in action? Well, she's
1: part of that massacre. Uh, yeah, The massacre on Raji Beach, folks. Uh It uh, it is incredible. It is a story that every child, every person should know about, that this happened. And out of all those people on that beach, there was sort of 80-plus nurses, Englishmen, women and children. They all were massacred. They didn't die. They were massacred, except for Vivian. She was shot. She she carried the wound, of course. She was shot through and through, uh, but survived.
0: So what we're reading in the book here, this again is the imagining of a writer when it comes to dialogue and conversation, but the basic facts were, uh, were recorded as historical facts.
1: Yes, they have been.
0: The prisoners then are in internment in those conditions we alluded to earlier, um, and they're being moved around, and you know, how else would you describe the conditions of those internment camps?
1: I don't think there's a word. I mean, appalling doesn't even begin to cover it. Uh, So they were really rejected by the Japanese. They had to look after them to some degree, and that was part of the problem what they had with the Japanese guards. Some days they were terribly brutal to them, and other days they'd be totally indifferent to them, and you never knew what you were going to get. The fact that they starved them, there was no food no food. They for wouldn't p-
0: let the Red Cross packages in, would they? There was no. aid coming in. Yeah,
1: and this is why we call them their internees and not prisoners of war, because if the Japanese had have accepted them as prisoners of war, they would have had to distribute Red Cross parcels, and they would have had to had exchange of mail. By not giving them those titles, and the nurses fought for it and said, "Well, look, we were members of the Australian Army." Uh, <laughs> We should be called prisoners of war, but no, they weren't having a bar of it. You're women, you know, you're down there with the, the, the pigs and the dogs and the chickens.
0: No communication with families then. would, As well as starvation, disease would spread, illness would spread mm. in the camps, dengue fever, I think, particularly.
1: This is the tropics, folks. Yes, dengue fever, malaria. Um, they actually had another one there. They called it um, banker fever because they were on Banker Island. So they couldn't pinpoint it to the others. but And these are the nurses having to come up with those diagnoses and not knowing tropical diseases because it's what not what they were taught in Australia.
0: These are, shall we say, robust characters in the sense that they've gone to war uh, to serve as nurses. Um, and so, you know, we, we anticipate as a starting point a resilience, a determination. But what's so particular about their story is the extent to which they would go to find ways to uplift their spirits. Yeah. And music becomes such a vital part of their story. How so, Heather?
1: Oh, yeah. Hey, listen, look at the cover of that book. I'm not saying you have to buy it, but anyone who sees it in a bookstore. And at the bottom of the cover, there are two bars of music that was written by Nora in that jungle 80 years ago. I have held the full document that that is written on.
0: So she can pose, and this is you know yeah. proper you know that is, and that's part of and... <laughs> um,
1: Ravel's Bolero. Yeah. It, they, she and Margaret formed choirs, and so they got the singing, and the, the Aussie nurses are putting on plays, and they, they're trying to entertain the women—some five hundred of them—and the children every Saturday night with a concert. But uh, Nora wanted to take it one step further. What about the classics, and her brilliant training at the Royal Academy in London of music in London. She then find, found scrap pieces of paper and started writing down the scores of Mozart and Mendelssohn and Strauss and Beethoven and Ravel. She then trained the voices of these women to well duplicate and represent instruments. This she is what's extra vocal orchestra.
0: She took a she took a piece by Tchaikovsky for example for cellos yes. and violins hmm. and 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 came up with a way where their voices could Take the role of the instrument, and yeah, it them. could be sung. Yes. Vujak's symphony in there as well, I think.
1: Yes, yes, Glidos. Like uh, just so many. And uh, look, I have held some 80 pages written by her, not only of just music scores from the classics and others, but she and Margaret wrote an incredible play, three act play wrote the scenes, put in the instructions, the directions, guards come in from the left, it's, it's midday. Uh, and then Nora went and wrote an original score over the top of it. And this was performed once only in the jungle. But I've held that document, I've held those documents, they are as precious as a newborn baby.
0: The How much do you imagine the response of the Japanese guards to some of these concerts? Again, are you... Um, Are you using historical records to say sometimes they were brutally cruel, sometimes they were indifferent? What sort of um, license have you taken in in some of the scenes in the book?
1: No, or everything I've recorded about how the Japanese reacted to the music is documented. Mm -hmm. It's documented by one of the uh, English women or the Australian nurses. And how did they react? Well, initially with indifference, and then they got caught up in it. And what I just love is their reaction to the song that they sang at the end of every concert, every Saturday night, which was Land of Hope and Glory. Now, clearly they didn't understand the words, (laughs) but they loved the power of it Mm. because every one of the women sang it. It it was the closing of the concert. And they would ask for an encore. And I found many accounts of uh, the, the Japanese commander there literally with tears streaming down his eyes listening to these 500 women sing Land of Hope and Glory. Nora wrote a hymn called the Captives' Hymn, and now Margaret wrote that. Ah, Big pardon. Um, and
0: yes, Margaret's the brilliant, the, the most brilliant musician. Yes, uh, they made a camp chronicle as well, the, like, yes. a, like a
1: little newspaper to keep spirits up. Uh, uh, a cookbook, a recipe book, yes. Where the Australians and the New Zealanders felt over who had the right to claim pavlova. Is <laughs> there national dish? Anywhere
0: and everywhere will do that. Yep. Um, there are the darker sides as well, of course, of the, of the conditions that they were. Building this resistance against building this spirit against um and in a society of sexual abuse, there were four nurses mm. who volunteered to go to the office camp, officers yes. camp, in other words, to protect the rest of the women and yeah. again they're they're kind of um esprit de corps well it's probably not the right word in these circumstances but but they all swore they would never reveal who those women who sacrificed themselves were, yes. And this was held even when evidence was being collected Mm -hmm. for court,
1: right? Exactly. The 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 nurses actually denied what had happened in order not to have to reveal this. They were told to deny it. Um, In the end, Vivian Bullwinkle, uh, even after her book had well out and, and not long before she died, she finally admitted it. She said, I've kept quiet long enough. But yes, the government of Australia... Now, when we looked at why was it kept uh, secret, why was it that they were to go and give evidence in a war trial in Japan and say on oath we were never sexually abused when that was an outright sort of, you know, uh, furphy. And it turned out, and we looked at the information at the time and some documents that had not been uh, revealed that had been kept, you know, 50 years sealed, that the Australian government was worried that if it came out that these Australian nurses had been sexually abused well, they, in their words, there would be World War Three, And the shame that the nurses would then have to go and live their life with the public in Australia. So did the were... women
0: want to reveal this? This wasn't about protecting the identities of the four women
1: who sacrificed this Oh, way. no, they wanted to protect those identities. But they, they wanted never, to tell it, the truth. They never expected that, mm. the, that the fact that it happened would be concealed. Would be denied. Yes. But uh, those four names, uh, there is no record, and uh, we found a couple of records where a couple of those the nurses have said it happened but even they would not reveal the names they all have been taken to the graves of every one of those nurses
0: Back to the survivors I think Sally whom we were talking about the eight year old on the boat whom Mm. you met through a series of coincidences and some symptom detective work for sure Mm -hmm. um I think she died in May. Did she ever get to see the the finished manuscript or near enough?
1: No, she saw bits of it because we knew that she was unwell and bloody COVID Mm. had got her. Uh, And uh, we'd been sending her bits of how I was going to be writing the story. And I was was in London for two months, January, February, writing it there at the time and keeping in touch. In fact, I went back to Jersey uh, in January. Uh, So she was all really aware of how it was playing out and... Um, was very, very humbled that this was her mother's story and just so supportive of it. And her son, Sean, who is now uh, the only living member of uh, Nora's family, uh, he too, and he will be there with me in Jersey uh, next week when we sit down in front of probably the entire island (laughs) to talk about this family. Um, yeah. Staying she with didn't families, see the finished book. Yeah. Uh, Staying
0: with families. You met Nesta's family, I think, in Cardiff. Yes. Um, and you know, she was she was under five foot, wasn't she? She was one of those yeah, you know, women, um, perhaps shorter in, in, in stature, but just carrying incredible respect and authority.
1: Yes. Uh, yes, I did. And it's interesting because her family members that I've met, uh, none of them are <laughs> four foot ten or anything like it. Mm. They're, they're well into the sort of five and a half foot plus. So mm. um, where her height come from, we don't know. But yeah, and the wonderful thing is I have been able to tell them now through my research more about their relative than they knew. They knew the broad stroke stuff, you know, that had been talked about generally quietly amongst the women. But uh, being able to reveal so much more to them, uh, they, they they tell me they're very grateful.
0: What happened to the camp commanders, by the way, Seki and Masaru?
1: Yes, well, one of them uh, took his own life when he was finally uh, captured, uh, just before his trial, and the other one was uh, got, got in prison. They got they got their comeuppance, kind of. Yeah, I mean, there's no there was nothing that could be done to them to really make them pay for what they did.
0: Where, where would where did this conclude for you? Uh, I, I guess you've um, you, you you've obviously talked to a lot of people, and I think you've um, written about one, Audrey Owen, a New Zealander working yes. in the YWCA, for example. How would she discuss her captivity when you asked about it?
1: Look, I read some lovely reports that Audrey made several years afterwards when she was being asked. I think it was when they were making... They did a This Is Your Life, BBC Life, for Margot Turner. Margot Turner was the the captive for the British woman for whom Tenko was based around, uh, from a different camp that she was in. And Audrey was one of the people that was asked to comment on, on the story. And what I love about her reply... It was that through all the horror and the evil that she saw being perpetrated, but through all the beauty of the jungle and the joy that the women brought to each other's lives, that out of all of that, she found herself.
0: I found myself there. Yeah. Yeah. Not I found myself here is as in how the hell did I get here? So this no. was an oral, or an oral recording, was it? It was I found who I was there. Was that yes. the implication? Yes,
1: and she went on to say, which I haven't sort of all put in the book there, that I learnt that what I was capable of, but I learnt that I was capable of achieving anything and everything I mm. wanted. Nothing now could stand in my way.
0: So this is Sisters of the Rising Sun, just published, and you're off to Jersey, as we said, to yep. celebrate that with, with one of the um, families.
1: Of, and to Cardiff. And,
0: yep. You're going to do the, the family tour. Um, in the meantime, The Tattoos of Auschwitz is being made into a TV series, and released next mm. year, I believe, with Melanie mm-hmm. Linsky playing yourself. Yes. Um, <laughs> how involved have you been in that process, and what can people expect? What do, What are you expecting?
1: Um, I know what I'm getting. <laughs> I was the, the script consultant was my fancy title. Three Wonderful. brilliant screenwriters were writing the scripts, and I was being sent them, and I was going, "Yeah, fabulous, great." No, 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 pull back, pull back. Uh, so there's been there was a bit of give and take, and this process has been went on for about a good eighteen months. But earlier this year, well, in February, and then again in May, I got to go to Slovakia, where for five months they completed the filming of the miniseries. So it's all wrapped, folks. So you've it's seen in the it. can. Yeah. And? Uh, and, um, yeah, pretty bloody amazing. <laughs> Look, there's a, a lot of cringe factor for me in here, because for you folks who've read the book and you're going, hang on a sec, we want the miniseries to be the book. Well, it is, but it's just got this little extra added bits to it. Why? Why are you a character? Because the publisher, the, the, the producer's who were talking to me at length about my involvement with Luddy and how I got the story, they kept getting caught up in the whole notion of this 87, 88, 89-year-old man told his story to you. That could play out visually beautifully. Okay. Get Why it. not have, in his own words, and him... Talking with you be part of the the story. So we come in and out, and that's Harvey and Melanie. Um, and by the way, Melanie refused to wear my red lipstick that I said I have to wear. <laughs> but she looks wonderful. She's wonderful, and Harvey's simply amazing. Thank as you, are Heather. all the actors.
0: Thank you, Heather Morris. She her latest book, historical novel, which is based on uh, based on factual stories, is Sisters Under the Rising Sun. And we were earlier talking there uh, about uh, an earlier book that is now being made into a TV series has been made into a TV series, The Tattooist of Auschwitz